junior church, fourth grade through four years old. If you want to meet up front, they'll walk you over to junior church. Advice can be a wonderful thing or an absolute disaster. I bet many of you can think back to some advice that you had received, perhaps some bad advice you had given. Sometimes we don't want to hear advice. Uh, there's many times that I've, I've heard people say, if I wanted your advice, I'd ask for it. Um, and that wasn't just speaking, spoken to me. I heard it spoken to a lot of people because we sometimes we just don't want advice. Irma um, Bombeck said, when your mother asked, do you want a piece of advice? It's merely a formality. It doesn't matter if you answer yes or no. You're going to get it anyway, which is very true. Proverbs 15.22 says, plans go wrong for lack of of advice. Many advisors bring success. Generally speaking, giving advice is a very good practice, but sometimes people who give advice have great intentions, but they give very bad advice. Now, I want to show you some advice that was given. These were publications. These were real things. None of these were made up. And I want you to decide if this advice was given, that was given, was a good or bad advice. So ladies, we're going to start with you. See if this is some great advice, and maybe even try it, see if it works. This woman's magazine cover says, nag him, and he'll buy, be by your side longer. Are you kidding? I, I've never known that to be true, right? That's bad advice. H how about this one? Look at this one. Uh, freeze a tube of toothpaste, slice the frozen toothpaste, and serve it as after-dinner mints. Be sure your guests only eat one. That was real advice given. You can see this, okay? This next one, um, this is bad advice. This is an advertisement of advice given to the 60s teenager. And it says, don't worry about cancer. You're immortal. That was real advice. Okay, um... We all want to believe in ourselves, right? We're all told, just believe in yourself. And, and I'll hear some advice on that. Every pizza is personal size if you try hard enough and believe in yourself. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's got more than two, 22 likes. That's right. Um, when you have a baby, when you have, first get your baby, you are flooded with advice. Just ask Dustin and Tiana right now. Everybody's telling them how to do things and how to handle things. Well, check out this advice. The small print on this magazine says, how soon is too soon? Not soon enough. Listen to This is actually what the small print, I couldn't read this one, so, but the small print on that other side says, laboratory tests over the last five years have proven that babies who start drinking soda early during that early formative period have a much higher chance of gaining acceptance and fitting in during those awkward preteen and teen years. So do yourself a favor. Do your child a favor. Start them on a strict regiment of sodas and other sugary carbonated beverages right now for a lifetime of guaranteed Happiness, brought to you by the Soda Pop Board of America. Now, first off, we know ridiculous, but how long was this supposed study? 
Five years. How long does it take to become a teenager? Their study doesn't match. For five years, we learned that a baby can become a popular teenager, but we didn't look at any teenagers. Okay, let's move on. Um, It is starting to get cold out, and pretty soon there's going to be that wonderful, beautiful white stuff all over, right? And it's going to be on the roads, and snow and ice can cause people to wreck. So what do we do? Well, here's some advice. Put a two-inch screw in each tread. Instant snow traction. Wait. We know this is a joke, right? Look at this. Um, bad advice, obviously, but it says, so I listened to you guys, and now I have a flat tire. Did I use the wrong screws? Some guy actually did the advice. So uh, there's a lot of bad advice out there. Last Sunday, we started on the final sermon series of our study through the book of Acts. And we're in destination Rome. Paul is focused on his destination, on getting to that last place where he knows he's supposed to present the gospel. In this text, he gets to meet with some friends before he goes to Jerusalem. And these friends are trying desperately to give him advice. They're giving this advice through their love of God and their love of Paul. Let's see what kind of advice that the Apostle Paul was given in Acts 21, starting in verse 1. After saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, we sailed straight to the island of Kos. The next day we reached Rhodes and then went to Patara. There we boarded a ship sailing to Phoenicia. We sighted uh, the island of Cyprus, passed it on our left, and landed in the harbor of Tyre in Syria, where the ship was unloaded of its cargo. We went to shore, found the local believers, and stayed with them for a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. There's that first advice. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including women and children, left the city and came down to the shore with us. There we knelt, prayed, said our farewells, and then we went aboard and they returned home. The next stop after leaving Tyre was, um, I forgot how to say it, Tomomas, where they greeted the brethren and sisters and stayed for one day. The next day we went to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, bound him, his own feet and hands with it, Then he said, the Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we, now notice this is the first time it went from them to we, we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But he said, Paul said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I am not ready. Not I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, "The Lord's will be done." After this, we packed our things and left for Jerusalem. Some believers from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to the home of Manson, a man originally from Cyprus and one of the early believers. Just like this. The, Just like last week, this scene is a bit odd. It's 
almost out of place. And yet the Holy Spirit directed Luke to record this. And so it means that God wants us to learn something. He wants us to apply this information to our lives. So what can we learn? And and there's going to be several things I think we can learn. Uh, In this text, we see well-intentioned people who are misguided. In verse 4, they advised him that he should not go to Jerusalem. Verses 10 through 12, a prophet, Agabus, foretells the persecution that Paul is going to be bound in Jerusalem and then handed over to Gentiles. And all through this, this advice that is given to Paul, we see Paul's determination to do the will of God. He's been given this advice, you're going to get handed over, you're going to be betrayed, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be bound, you're going to be jailed, you're going to be handed over, and yet he still chooses to go. He stays the course following this will of God. The striking thing in this passage is despite these clear prophecies of the Holy Spirit, because Luke said, directed by the Holy Spirit, they said these things. Paul persistently refused to alter his plans to push onward towards Jerusalem. And the question that is probably on everyone's mind, and it was on mine when I was reading this, why would the Holy Spirit tell Christians to say, this is going to happen in Jerusalem? Don't go to Jerusalem. Were the Christians wrong in telling Paul this advice, or was Paul wrong in not listening to the advice? And so I kept reading commentaries, I kept studying this out, and I truly believe Paul was right in his reaction. A few, one of the reasons, it is God's will that Paul goes to Jerusalem. While still in Ephesus, you can read this a chapter earlier in Acts 20, verse 22. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He knows he is going to Jerusalem. He is compelled by the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. He just knows he has to go there. So he's steadfast in his conviction that it is God's will that I go to Jerusalem. Later on, the second evidence is reassurance given by God. Later in Acts, Paul's troubles start happening in Jerusalem. He's having difficulties in that persecution, and, and I can almost imagine that he heard the message that, You go there, you're going to have trouble. He heard it multiple times, and he goes there, and he has troubles, and he's thinking, should I have done this? Maybe I was wrong. Acts 23, verse 11, which we're going to go over later on anyway. That night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. God reassures Paul, you are on track. You're good. So Paul's friends could only see what was going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem, but God meant to see the next stages after Jerusalem. If it was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem, how are we to interpret then that those believers prophesied in the Holy Spirit? That's what it says. I mean, if somebody comes up and says, you know, God really placed it on my heart that I need to tell you this, that you shouldn't do this, or that this is going to happen. Should we listen to the Holy Spirit then? Absolutely. But let's make sure we understand what exactly the Holy Spirit is telling us. Albert Barnes, uh, a commentator that one of them I read this week, this is what he said. This was not understood by Paul as a positive command that he should not go to Jerusalem. 
For had it been, it, he would not have disobeyed it. He evidently understood the, the believers as expressing their, con, their earnest wish that he should not go, informing him of the danger and a kind expression of regard to his own welfare and safety. Paul was in a better circumstance to understand this than we are, and his interpretation was then doubtless correct. Should be understood, therefore, simply as an inspired prophetic warning that if he went, it was at the risk of his life. A prophetic warning joined with their individual personal wishes that he should not expose himself to that danger. The meaning evidently is that they said by the inspiration that don't go unless you're willing to encourage danger, or counter danger, for they foresaw the journey to be, um, would be attended with the hazard of his life. What he's saying there is these believers heard the message that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be jailed. And then they added to it their concern, but so don't go. I, I've seen bad things happen to people. I could see it before they did it. You know how when you're, you're setting outside of the, somebody's life, you can see the roadmap that they're choosing by their choices. And so if you do this, it's going to be bad. And you try to give them warning. And then you overemphasize it because of your care. No, don't do this. It's going to bring you ruin, destruction, and death. And really, it's not going to bring death, but we overemphasize it because we truly care. And that's what I think is happening here in Acts. Paul has constantly preached, he must, we all must submit to the will of God. We must obey God's directives. We've seen Paul want to go to places. He wanted to go, and yet the Spirit prevented him. So he's willing to listen and obey to the Spirit. He's seeking God's will. He's seeking God's direction. And here the Christians come and say, if you go there, it's going to be, bring destruction, hardships, and they're concerned. And Paul takes the nugget of truth there and says, but it is God's will. And so I'll obey. So what can we learn there? First, we can learn that in our decisions, not all advice is good or the right advice even if it comes from people that truly love us or wise and knowledge. Sometimes good people can give you the wrong advice. I think this is the case with the Christians here in verse 4 who say Paul should not go to Jerusalem when really what they should be saying is, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. And he's like, okay. The Holy Spirit did not forbid Paul to go to Jerusalem. According to verse 22 in Acts 20, the Holy Spirit told him to go. So, Either the Holy Spirit changed his mind or somebody misunderstood. Sometimes the advice we offer others can be based more on what we desire than what is for their own good. Parents, let's just lay this out for a moment. We want the best for our kids. Absolutely. We want the best, and we're going to tell them multiple times what we think the best is for their life. Do you know why, kids, we say this? We made you. We truly love you. We want the best for you. We'll lay down our lives for you. But hear, hear me on this, kids. Sometimes your parents are ignorant. They don't understand everything. And what they're saying to you is out of their heart, even though you don't think it is. They love you and they want the best. I, I, I used to want my boys to do certain things. Um, I wanted them to, to get a career that was going to make a ton of money so that they could build me a house with a large koi pond. 
And I told them that multiple times. It's for their best that they build this for me. Because then it will keep me out of their hair. We want good things for them. It's sometimes the way we project it comes out negatively instead of lovingly. And I think that's what happens here. We can sometimes give good advice, but it comes out the wrong way. Sometimes the advice we offer can be based more on what we desire. And that this is Paul's friends. Agabus himself didn't try to stop Paul. When he comes there, he tells them, he ties him up with the belt and says, this is what's going to happen. And then when you read the scripture, the Greek says, and after hearing this, we said, Paul, don't go. They heard the message and said, Paul, you shouldn't go. It's bad news. They heard the advice and they took it one way where Paul heard it and said, okay, I'm ready. Secondly, even though it's generally good to give advice when asked, we need to remember in the end our decisions. Um, our decisions only those. Wait, I just wrote that wrong. Only those facing a decision know the facts and are qualified to make the final decision. I loved to give my brother advice. I'm smarter than him, more knowledgeable, better looking. He's stronger physically. <laughs> And he makes sure I know that. So, um, But he used to call me and, get, and ask me advice, and I'd love to give it to him. And then I would get so frustrated when he didn't do what I told him to do. Why are you asking me advice if you're not going to do it? And, and at one point, I even said, you know what? I'm going to start giving you the bad advice, but maybe you'll do the opposite, and it'll finally be right. He quit calling me for a while. I can give advice. But it's not my decision to act on that. That's theirs. And that's what these here. Paul had the ultimate decision. If we give advice because we love and care for the person, great. But ultimately, their choice, their decision, it's their decision on that. And maybe we just don't know all the details. Like Paul knew more of the details. Once we've dispensed our advice and a decision is made, we shouldn't interfere, intervene any further. We see this clearly illustrated in the text with Paul. Paul's friends shared with him their cautions, their concerns. They were faithful friends, but they also had respect. Once they saw Paul had made his decision, they simply left the matter in the Lord's hands. Okay, we're not going to fight and argue with you. We're going to lay it down. So when asked for advice, do give your insight, cautions, but in the end, give them the authority to make the decisions in their life. Because maybe they know something about what God's doing in their life that we don't. One more lesson that I think God would, um, that God's will should be paramount in our lives in this. In our decisions, we must choose to follow God's will. I can't make my kids follow God's will. I can't. I can show them. I can advise them. Ultimately, it's their choice. But I can choose for my life to follow God's will. And we have to each do that. Even his best friends opposed him. Paul would not veer from the determination to do the will of God in his life. He knew full well that it meant suffering in Jerusalem. In Acts 20, it says, I know I'm supposed to go, but I don't know what's going to happen. In the beginning of 21, he found out what's going to happen. And by the middle of 21, he's like, I'm still going. Acts 21, verse 13 Paul was determined to do the well so much. Look what he says. Why all this weeping? You are breaking my heart. I am not only, 
I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. This verse made me stop and ask this next question. What is God's will for your life? This question right here on the board right now has been asked by so many people. I get asked this question. I just don't know God's will for my life. I don't know what God wants me for me. I've heard this from a sweet old couple who are in their 90s to 11 and 12 year olds. And everywhere in between, so many people have asked this question, what is God's will for my life? We tend to see God's will as these huge choices. These big choices that we make, the right spouse, the the right career for our lives. But the only places the Bible talks about the will of God have to do with specific commands that Christ has given. This was a shocker for me when I read it in the commentary. That means the will of God is to do what he commands you to do. And then he allows you to make the decisions based on that. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, be thankful in all circumstances, which, by the way, that is a command. For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. What is God's will for you? To be thankful in all circumstances. What does that have to do with your career? Be thankful. Which career? Be thankful. What does this have to do with your spouse? Ladies, just be thankful, please. We know he's... Yeah, you know who he is. Be thankful. What else is God's will? It's God's will, according to Scripture, that you're saved. He's commanded it. He wants it. Have you been? It's not, do I need to go over here or go say here? It's, are you saved? It's God's will that he be first in your life, even if that means sacrifice of friends, activities, times, finances. So is he first? In your life. It is God's will that you love one another. That's a command that he's given us. Do you reach out to those in need and love them? To love the unlovely? To forgive them, one another? It's God's will that you follow in the Lord's um, plan of salvation. From belief, acceptance, confession, baptism, and walking in a new life. It's God's will to be faithful when, when the church comes together to worship his name and to fellowship. It's God's will that you do tithe. That's not my job. That is God's will. It's commanded in the church. It's God's will for you to serve through your gifts and talents in the local church as well as in the community. It is God's will for you to be here for each one of us to serve. If we do not know God's will for our lives, because we're not reading his word. That's that's the real answer. I want to know what God wants me to do. Read the Bible. I want to know how to be a better husband and wife. I want to know what his will is for. Read the Bible. I want to know the career. Read the Bible. His will is written down for every one of us. And Paul is saying, I don't care what the rest of you say. Give me the advice, but I'm following the will of God. Because it's written in Scripture. When we receive advice, we need to make sure that advice that we are given lines up with God's will. When people we love, who truly love us, people we respect, people who really want the best for us, when they give us advice, listen to it, evaluate it, be thankful that they gave it to you, 
and then take it to God in prayer and say, is this what you want me to do? Before you act on it. I receive advice from many people. I don't act on all of it at all. Um, some of it is given because they truly care for me, and I know this. Some advice is given to me because they think they need to show that they're smarter than me. Okay, you probably are. And I listen. Some advice is given just to make noise. So how do we know what is good advice? Don't ask me what's good advice. Go to God's will. Ask him. God will never give you bad advice. When we are giving advice, make sure you do not hold them to that advice. Remember, we may not know all the facts, all the information. My parents were, um, they felt like God was calling them to leave their job. They just finally bought property, had a house put on it, lived there. They had a pond. I mean, they had a nice area. Good jobs. And then they decided to sell it all and to go work at a Christian college, move into a little apartment. Mom was going to work in the mail room. Dad was going to work on maintenance and be over the boys' dorm. And it seemed like a ridiculous idea. You're making pretty good money now. You're very involved in your church. And they still went. Some people got mad at them. Why would you do that? Why did they do it? Because they felt it was God's will. And those people who got mad at them for it were holding their own expectations and not looking at what God's will is. Do not take it personally if they choose not to follow what you say. I'm going to give you some advice here. Read the Bible. But if you don't, it's not on me. I'm just going to tell you what I think is best. It's up to you to do that. And that's how I need to be whenever I give advice to anyone else as well. Look again at what Paul says at the end of verse 13. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Why was Paul not afraid to face eternity? It is natural for anyone to fear death, yet Paul here seems immune to anything approaching fear as he sets out towards Jerusalem. Paul had courage in the face of death. He is gung-ho for it. We have many illustrations of such fearlessness in the face of death by martyrs throughout the history of the church. Why were Paul and these martyrs so full of faith, so courageous to face death? Here's the only thing that I can understand and reason why. When a person is saved through faith in Jesus Christ, they have the assurance their sins are forgiven and that their destination is secure. My sins are gone. I know I'm going to heaven. And it is sin that causes us to fear meeting God. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned. Before they sinned, they were walking in the garden with God. They'd walk with him. As soon as they sinned, they feared meeting him, so they went and hid. They were afraid. Guilt brings shame, and shame causes the sinner to want to hide from God. And we have never changed from that garden. Good works and religion are not enough to wash away your sin. I've heard so many people say, well, you know, he's a good person. I've... I get to do lots of funerals, some for unbelievers and some for believers. 
Every single funeral, somebody says, I just know they're up in heaven. And I'm looking at scriptures going, no, they're not. They didn't acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They didn't go through salvation. Oh, but they were a good person. Some people thought Hitler was a good person. I'm not joking. I'm not trying to make a thing. Some people thought he was a good person. What is our basis of good? Is God. God's word is good. And scripture says none of us are good without him. 1 John 1, 7. Look what it says. But if we are living in the light as God is the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. It's not church attendance. It's not reading scripture. It's not praying. It's not doing good things. What is it that saves us from sin? Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that cleanses us. In Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14, Paul says that Jesus Christ is redemption. He's the only one that can redeem us. He's the only way of forgiveness of their sins. Jesus is the only thing. Through the cross, we have our guilt and our shame removed, which allows us to come to God the Father with confidence, with courage. And so if we cannot, if we look at ourselves and say, I just don't know if I could meet God. It's because we're not letting go of those sins that Jesus has taken away and accepted the, the grace that he wants to give us. This true story, in the 16th century, King Philip II of Spain ruled Holland and his hatred of the Dutch. He killed, tortured, and imprisoned and exiled thousands. When the people of Rotterdam rose up in defiance, he sent a Spanish army under the Duke of Alva to put down the entire rebellion. After a valiant defense, Rotterdam fell before the Spanish army. The victors went from house to house searching for the citizens, slaying them in a horrific bloodbath of vicious killing. They would drag them out of the homes, men, women, and children, and slaughter them out on the street. In one home, there was a group of men, women, and children huddling together, fear gripping their hearts. As they could see down the windows, down the, the lane there, that soldiers were approaching. This young man of about 15 had an idea. He snuck out the back. He took a young goat that was out back, brought it in, and he killed it right at the entrance of the door. He cut the throat and slaughtered that goat. And then took the corpse and threw it out back. And then they took a broom and started pushing it towards the door. The soldiers came. They started knocking on the door, wanting to get in, wanting to find out if someone's there. And then they saw blood trickling under the door. And the one soldier said, look, there's blood under the door. Let's go, men. There are, our work here is already done. That young man saved everybody by the spilling blood. And you know what? That is just an example of what Jesus did for you and I. Satan comes because he knows he owns you because of your sin. He knows he gets to take you to hell. And yet when he comes to the believer's heart, he says, I own you, I own you. And he sees blood spilling out because of Jesus. My job's here's done. I can't do it anymore. And he leaves because Satan's defeated by the blood of Jesus. And the people in that home are more courageous because they get to live because something covered their sins. Something covered and saved them. 
And Christians, when we take a hold of that, when we take a hold of that God's blood covers over me, and now I can stand in the presence, I don't care what persecution is coming in this world. Because the blood of Christ covers me, I don't care what kind of problems are coming, because I stand before God. I am going to do His will. You want to know why Paul was so courageous? He knew who he was in God's eyes. He knew this is the will of God. And you can live because the Lamb of God died for you. Paul knew he might die physically. But he was saying, bring it because I've got eternity. You have the same assurance. I have that same assurance. Let me wrap this up by bringing two thoughts down to where you and I live. First, as we saw, Paul was bound and determined to do God's will for his life, despite the well-meaning advice of his friends. So are you committed to doing God's will in your life, no matter what your friends or family members may say or do, that you cannot be turned away from doing God's will? No matter what others think of you, what it may cost you, will you do God's will? God will help each one of us to understand that destination. I, I can tell you, I, I'm not trying to brag here. I was told to, that I could be a great architect, that I could design all those things. I did it in high school. I even helped a, another guy several years ago design a church and do all the architect. It's fun. It's easy. I, I liked it. And I could do it. I know I could. And my teacher in high school, he started saying all this stuff. And I know I've said this before, but it matches here. He said, you could go to college, you'll be making 60000 before you graduate. He told me the f- few firms that would already hire me in that college, by the time you graduate, you'll be making six figures. After years of that, you're going to be able to own and pay whatever you want. And I'm like, yes. He says, but are you going to listen to your wallet or are you going to listen to God? Because Mr. Livergood knew I needed to be a preacher. That was God's will for my life. And I had to choose to which advice am I going to listen to. Are you so willing that you're going to let go of anything in this world to follow the will of God? Paul was so courageous to face death, if necessary, for the gospel's sake, because he knew where his relationship was. It was secure. He knew all of his sins were forgiven. So if he did die for the cause of Christ, he's going to win and go to heaven. And that's why he wrote this next scripture. And I really want you to hear this in light of everything Paul's going. He's going to have this advice given to him that don't go. And he says, I'm still going to go. You're going to be bound. I'm still going to go. They start weeping. And he says, stop. You're breaking my heart. This is God's will. Later, when he was bound and jailed, look what he wrote to the people in Philippi. For me to, for to me, living means living for Christ and dying even better. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And and what he's saying there is my life, the whole purpose of living is to live for the name of Jesus. And if I die doing that, I win. Great. Where's the lose here? Which leads me to one final question. One final question. Do you live wholeheartedly for Christ. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. 
Jesus is what he lived for. Can you say Jesus is what makes me tick? Jesus is what makes me so excited to get up out of bed. Jesus is the reason I teach and train my children. Jesus is the reason I try to be a better spouse. Jesus is the reason I go to work. Jesus fuels me. Can you say that? And if you died, would you say, good, are we holding on to this earth? Are we holding on to things in this world that are going to pass away? This world, politics are a joke. Financial security is temporary. Success and fame are fleeting. And all of it, it goes away. I've talked to people who have lost family members, who have lost their homes, who have lost jobs. And the only ones that are still, that I want to be around, are the ones that say, but I know Jesus. And they live their life for that. And I think it's time for us to say, what are we going to, where is God's will for our life? Because it's written in Scripture. He's wanting us to step out and take it. And then we can show the world, you know what? This world's junk. But wait till I go home. Growing up, I, I, I know many of you probably did this too. I couldn't wait to bring people home to my, to my mom. She'd make pizzas for all of them. She knew how to love on them. My friends loved coming home to my, my house. How much more do I want to bring you home? with me to heaven. I want all of us to go. And sadly, there are people even in this room who have not chosen that. Despite the good advice, I want you to go, but I won't force you. Jesus didn't force you, so I can't. But are we ready, church, to say, my will is to live for God and then die and go to heaven? Are you willing to do it? And if you haven't chosen that, what is stopping you? We're going to stand. We're going to go to worship. And if you have never accepted that, why don't you come and do that? But as we do this, once you think about the advice that God has given you in his scripture and pledge to follow it.